Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. And Jesus went away from there and withdrew to the district of Tyre and Sidon. And behold, a Canaanite woman from that region came out and was crying, Have mercy on me, O Lord, son of David. My daughter is severely oppressed by a demon. But he did not answer her a word. And his disciples came and begged him, saying, Send her away, for she is crying out after us. He answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him, saying, Lord, help me. And he answered, It is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. She said, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus answered her, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done for you as you desire. And her daughter was healed instantly. Jesus went on from there and walked beside the Sea of Galilee, and he went up on the mountain and sat down there. And great crowds came to him, bringing with him the lame, the blind, the crippled, the mute, and many others. And they put them at his feet, and he healed them. So that the crowd wondered when they saw the mute speaking, the crippled healthy, the lame walking, and the blind seeing. And they glorified the God of Israel. Then Jesus called his disciples to him and said, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat. And I am unwilling to send them away hungry, lest they faint on the way. And the disciples said to him, Where are we going to get enough bread in such a desolate place to feed so great a crowd? And Jesus said to them, How many loaves do you have? They said, Seven, and a few small fish. Directing the crowd to sit down on the ground, he took the seven loaves and the fish, and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to the disciples, and the disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. And they took up seven baskets full of the broken pieces left over. Those who ate were four thousand men besides women and children. And after sending away the crowds, he got into the boat and went to the region of Magadan. Father, we ask as we reflect on these mighty works of Jesus that you would do a mighty work in us, that you would give us ears to hear the truth that you proclaim to us, that you would give us eyes to see Christ calling to us. Lord, help us now to heed your word. In Christ's name, amen. There's a passage in one of Marcel Proust's novels, The Prisoner, which is, I think, the the fifth book in his uh, epic In Search of Lost Time. If I'm wrong about that, someone please correct me. It would delight me for someone to know more about this than I do. But it's always fascinated me, this observation, because he's imagining the idea of visiting other worlds. If we could travel to other planets or other dimensions, he says, even then we wouldn't make the discoveries that we imagine, because if we traveled to those places, if we could, we would still be taking ourselves with us. We would still be limited by our own perception, by our own senses. 
He's, he writes, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. It's not finding new places sometimes. It's being able to see the same places, but to see them anew, to see them differently. Now, admittedly, Matthew, in the text that we've just read, does take us to some new places. Jesus and the disciples travel out of the region where Jesus has been ministering to the area around Tyre and Sidon. So, in other words, basically Lebanon. This is a Gentile territory. We're really on the borders at this point. When they return, we'll go to the Sea of Galilee, but to the far side of the Sea of Galilee where there's a lot of Gentile settlement. So we will see some new scenery. And yet... What Matthew gives us there is actually same old, same old. Just another series of events, things we've already seen before in Matthew's Gospel. We've already seen Jesus heal someone on behalf of someone else, even a Gentile someone. In chapter 8, the Roman centurion comes to Jesus asking for healing for his servant, and he gets it. We've already seen people bringing those who need healing to Jesus and Jesus healing them. In fact, we saw that at the end of Matthew 14 at Gennesaret. We had another scene just like this one. We've even seen Jesus miraculously feeding people out in the wilderness. Again, in Matthew 14. And in that case, it was 5,000, not 4,000 like it is here. So we're getting repetition, but, but it's not even as great as what we had before. Just more of the same. Things we've already seen Jesus do. No surprises here. It feels that way. But Matthew's detailed account of Jesus' encounter with this Canaanite woman, if you pay attention to it, actually gives you the new eyes that you need to see these familiar events, but to see them in a new way. That's what we need to do to see things that Jesus has already done, but to see them differently and recognize what is new and fresh about what's happening here. Because if you pay attention to this woman and her story, you will see all of the things that come afterwards differently than you saw them before. Believe it or not, if you pay attention to her story, you will come away with a new appreciation for the doctrine of election. I kid you not. And if you pay attention to her story, you'll also see more clearly what the compassion of Jesus means for you. But in order to do it, we have to look with new eyes. We have to look for what's different in these stories when we compare them to what went before. These miracles look different if you look at them through the lens of inclusion. If you remember, when we were talking about Jesus walking on the water and then Peter walking out to meet Him, I made a two-part observation about that miracle. He said, what the disciples witnessed was the power of Jesus, clearly. But they also witnessed something else. When Peter walked out to join Jesus, they saw not only the power of Jesus, but human inclusion in that power. Jesus had the power to walk on water, but when Peter did it too, they saw that the power Jesus had was for them, not just for him. Those two things, the power 
and the inclusion are essential to understanding what Jesus is doing here in our text. If you recall, after I made that point, everything that came afterwards, including those healings at Gennesaret, you see them a little bit differently because you recognize that in every act of healing, Jesus is not just showing that he has the power to do it. He's also showing that the power is for those who are being healed. It's not just that he's powerful, but that the powerful God of the universe has come down and become one of us for us. Inclusion, in other words. When Jesus heals, that healing makes a statement that the power I have is for you. If you're blind and Jesus gives you sight, the power is for you. If you're lame and Jesus gives you the ability to walk, he's showing that the power is for you. My power is for you. But it's not for her. That's the problem in this passage. That's the obstacle that this Canaanite woman is up against. The power is for you, but not for her. The power of God is for the people of God. When the Canaanite woman comes to Jesus and she asks him to deliver her daughter from demon oppression, Jesus says, when he finally speaks, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. She doesn't go away. She begs before him. She kneels. She entreats him. And he says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. His message couldn't be clearer. The promise is for them and for their children. It's not for you and your children. Now, as I said, we've seen Gentile inclusion before in the case of the centurion. But there is a difference in what happens here and what happens afterwards. You might say it's a difference of volume because that centurion was one guy and he was a man in power, a man of ability, the sort of man we might make an exception for. But here, this woman is not a woman in power. She's not a person who has great social capital. After Jesus does what He does for her, He also turns to people like her. He travels from her region to the far side of Galilee where there are a lot of people like her and He heals those people, all comers, without distinction. And then He feeds those people, all comers, without distinction. That's the difference in what's happening here. There's a mixture to this multitude, a, a breadth to the ministry of Jesus that changes. These acts of physical inclusion are pointing to a reality of spiritual inclusion, a reality that we take for granted, but they didn't and really couldn't based on what they knew. Now, at first... Jesus meets the woman's pleas with silence, and the disciples interpret the silence of Jesus, as disciples often do. Jesus says nothing to her, and they think they know why it is. They understand how inappropriate this request is. and awkward? They understand, humanly speaking, she sees other people's 
ailments being healed, other people's children being delivered, and she wants the same for her child. She just doesn't realize the theological uh, situation. And so she asks inappropriately for something that Jesus, of course, mustn't give her. We know that this is how they see the situation because of the suggestion that they give for how to solve it. They think what needs to happen is she needs to be sent away. Now, Jesus voices arguments against her. Like Jesus, in a sense, gives voice to the tradition of the elders that would tell against her. He gives voice to the arguments that would naturally be in the heads of his disciples. But he does it in the form of a test. He does it, he presents obstacles that elicit from her more and more expressions of faith, of commitment, of her belief. He does it, we might say, to test her faith, but also, I think, as a demonstration to those around him who clearly do not understand what is happening. When we see this as other bystanders trying to interpret, it's easy for us also to misinterpret what's happening here. Jesus seems to be stating a rule over and over again, and then ultimately he makes an exception to that rule on the basis of her persistent faith. That's the way we look at it. But that's not the right way to look at it. That's not the actual basis for her inclusion. Gentile inclusion is not a case of Jesus relaxing the rules out of compassion. It's something else. There's something else going on here. Jesus doesn't see the faith of the centurion or of the Canaanite woman and decide that if your faith is that strong, if you have that magnitude of faith, then I think I could probably bend the rules for you. I think I could probably make this work for you because of your great faith. Rather, it turns out that faith is not the exception that somehow gets around the rules. Faith is the rule. Faith is the rule. If you think back to Nazareth, when Jesus visited his hometown, he didn't work the wonders there that were seen elsewhere. He didn't heal very many people. He didn't cast out very many demons in Nazareth. And Matthew tells us why. Because of their unbelief, he says. On the one hand, we see people in Nazareth who were born into the nation of Israel who, because of their unbelief, are not included in the benefits of Jesus' power. But on the other hand, we see people who were not born into the nation of Israel who, because of their faith, are included in the benefits of Jesus' power. The Canaanite woman was not born into the family of Abraham, but she shared the faith of Abraham. And Paul says, it is those who believe as Abraham believed who are his children. Paul also insists that this isn't a new rule that's being written. It's always been this way. Abraham was justified by faith. And so are we, his children. This changes our understanding and theirs of what it means to be chosen by God. 
but who is chosen? If you think about the argument against the Canaanite woman, it's basically this, you are not chosen. You are not chosen. The gifts of God are for the people of God. If she's not one of those people, then these gifts are not for her. Another way of thinking about chosenness is this. Who is the promise for? If Jesus has come in answer to a promise that God has made, who is that promise for? The disciples would have said that that was an easy question to answer. The covenant promise is for the sons of Abraham. And the sons of Abraham are his physical descendants. But eventually, those same men would come to answer that same question very differently. Listen to the way that Peter answers that question on Pentecost in Acts 2. He says, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to Himself. Now this woman, she has nothing in her favor but her faith. She's arguing not for herself, but for her daughter. She's saying to Jesus, essentially, the promise is for me and for my children. Now, in the face of the old understanding of election, that chosenness, that's an ethnic category. That's something you're physically born into. Like you're born into the kingdom physically. That's the point that Jesus is making to this woman. But as he makes it, She's undeterred. She's confident. Imagine, he's saying to her, no, and she's believing yes the whole time. Jesus doesn't just hear what she's saying. When he hears it, Jesus enthuses in his response to her. Oh, woman, he says, great is your faith. He's in awe of what he's witnessing here. It echoes the words he spoke to the centurion when he said, truly, I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. It's a common misunderstanding that now that the age of faith has dawned, the old way of doing things has been temporarily suspended in order to bring in Gentiles like this woman. And then once that's done, God will revert back to the original rule. Essentially believing that in the New Testament order, faith earns inclusion. Even though a person wasn't born to inherit the kingdom, for this period of time, he can enter based on merit by having strong enough faith. When Jesus says things to people like, your faith has made you whole, we interpret that as if he's saying that strong faith triggers the exception. That if you have enough faith, then I can make an allowance for you, even though by right, you don't belong But what if, in moments like this, 
Jesus isn't making an exception? What if Jesus is just applying the actual original rule? What if Jesus is just doing what God has always done and always intended? What if the role of the faith of people in moments like this is to demonstrate the work of the Spirit already within them, signaling that they are not excluded, but rather included by virtue of the fact that clearly God is working in them? What if their faith is a sign that the promise is in fact for them and their children because the promise is being fulfilled in them? Jesus doesn't heal this woman's daughter because of her faith. Despite the fact that she doesn't have any rights to healing, Jesus heals because she has a right to it. Her faith is evidence of that. You might say, of all the people assembled there, she had more right to it than most. Jesus wasn't granting a favor. He was recognizing a reality. And if you can see that, you might understand why the doctrine of election meant more to people like her than it often means to people like us. Because we look at it as this hard theological mystery, this thing that it's awkward to have to explain that you almost wish hadn't even been mentioned in Scripture. But election, as it was taught by Jesus and the apostles was the assurance that Gentile believers like this woman had that they were not at the table on sufferance because of an exception that was made on account of their merit. It was an assurance to them that they belonged at the table as much as anyone. That they had a right to be in the presence of God because they were His children indeed as much as anyone was. Now, if the Old Testament idea of chosenness was ethnic, as we said, we can see reflections of that here. God chooses a particular people, right? If you were born an Israelite, you were chosen. If you were born an Egyptian, you were not. And yet, looking back, we realize it never really operated that way. Not really, not truly. There were always people born into the covenant community who rejected the God of Israel and worshipped idols. In some periods of Israel's history, that was most people. They were not the exception by far. So that in the New Testament, when the idea of chosenness shifts here from the physical to the spiritual, in a sense, what's being revealed is how things have always really worked. Right? Just as the covenant with Abraham predates the law that was given to Moses, spiritual election comes before the physical one. Long before. Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world. The kind of chosenness the apostles speak of came long before this physical ethnic idea. If you were insisting on your right to sit at God's table because of your physical descent, the Apostle Paul would disillusion you and say, that's not what makes you a son of Abraham. It's your spiritual descent that justifies your claim. He says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. 
And those whom He predestined, He also called. And those whom He called, He also justified. And those whom He justified, He also glorified. And that woman was one of them. Jesus did not make an exception for this dog and feed her some scraps from the table because He felt sorry for her. Analogically, I mean, she calls Him Master. Jesus is the kind of Master who doesn't have dogs. He has children. And He recognizes one of them before Him. This may seem like a fine distinction, but it's worth making while we're on this point. If the challenge made to the woman was something like this, hey, you're not chosen. This is not for you. The answer that Jesus makes is not to say, well, no one is chosen. Don't talk that way. He doesn't abolish the idea of chosenness, in other words. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, yeah, but now everyone is chosen, which would amount to doing the same thing. But rather, it's a movement from the physical to the spiritual. The point is that those who are born spiritually through and to faith are chosen, regardless of their physical descent. This idea of chosenness, it's not abolished, it's not debunked or redefined out of existence. Rather, it is further illuminated. It is brought into greater focus. We're allowed to see it with new eyes. All along, it turns out, election was spiritual, having taken place before the foundation of the world. And whoever comes to faith, like this woman, can have confidence that the promise is for her and for her children. That actually suggests that the chosenness of the nation of Israel was typological. right? That it was an earthly, physical analogy of that earlier heavenly election, similar to the way that the physical temple was a type of the heavenly one meant to teach us something about the way that God works. God chose the physical offspring of Abraham in order to teach us something about the way He had already chosen the spiritual offspring of Abraham before the foundation of the world. So this inclusion was nothing new. It wasn't a change of heart on God's part. It had always been His intention and His plan being revealed to us now. And it's an inclusion that flows from love, not mere sentimentality. The compassion of Jesus in this moment is actually worth reflecting on because it colors everything that comes afterwards. The healing of the people, the feeding of the 4,000. Jesus says to the disciples in verse 32, I have compassion on the crowd because they've been with me now three days and have nothing to eat, and I am unwilling to send them away hungry lest they faint on the way. I hope that by now you can see your identification with this Gentile woman. I hope that as she claims the promise for her and her children, you can put yourself in her shoes and desire what she desires. I hope that by now, as you think about the mute and the crippled and the lame and the blind, you can put yourself in their shoes and desire from Jesus for yourself what they desired. And I hope that by now, too, as you see this hungry multitude, that you can put yourself in their place as well 
that you can see yourself as fainting, as you can see yourself as needing to be fed and longing to be fed by Christ. If you can see yourself in them, then you can see that Jesus' compassion is for you as much as it is for them. It belongs to you as much as it belonged to them. If the Canaanite woman's faith was a sign that the promise belonged to her, then the faith that is working in you is a sign that the promise is for you and for your children too. But I hope that as you see that compassion of Jesus that's for you, you recognize that it's more than sentimentality. It's more than just Jesus feeling bad for people who had a tough life and found themselves in a tough situation. And obviously, compassion includes that kind of sympathy. But help offered to others based on that kind of pity, based on the fact that you feel bad seeing their situation, that's the most insecure kind of help that there is. People who receive generosity from those who feel sorry for them often come to resent that generosity because that kind of charity comes with strings attached. When I help you because I feel bad about your situation, I expect you to pay me back by making me feel good about my help. But there was more to the compassion of Jesus than that. He didn't just feel bad for people and want to do a good thing. He treated the people that he had compassion for as if they had a right to the gift that he was giving them. They have been with me now three days, he says. They hadn't earned the right to be fed, but Jesus treated them as if they deserved it, as if he owed it to them somehow. He says he's not willing to send them away hungry. He feels compelled to give this gift to them. In this case, unlike the feeding of the 5,000, he doesn't try to turn it into a teaching moment to show the disciples that they should actually feed. He just says, you guys, you're, you're on the long road to understanding. Let me handle this one. Right? He takes what they have, he distributes it, and everyone is satisfied. And Jesus does this kindness to them, not because he feels sorry for them, but because he feels some kind of duty to them, connection to them. In this act of feeding, just as in an act of healing, it's as if Jesus is recognizing, these are my people. These are my people. Now, I'm not saying that every person who was physically fed was spiritually Chosen, But I am saying that the physical in Scripture is a sign of the spiritual to show us how it works. And it's really hard to imagine a more powerful sign of spiritual inclusion than a compassion that doesn't treat you like a dog who should feel lucky to get scraps from the table. An inclusion like this is an inclusion that doesn't inspire the faithful to live in fear that they aren't really chosen or to feel that the blessings of the kingdom aren't really for people like them. That's not the kind of inclusion that Jesus promises. I know sometimes it can feel that way in the church. 
I know sometimes you can come into the church and feel like you're not the right kind of person and maybe even feel grateful that people don't judge you for being here. Feel grateful that people accept you as well. That maybe you too could be someone who belongs here. But you don't ever need to feel grateful that you've been accepted in this place. Because when Jesus calls you, you have a right to it as much as anyone here. You might not have been born into the church. You might not have been raised believing in this faith. But if Christ has called you, if Christ is working in you, no one has more of a right to this than you do. The promise is for you and for your children too. If you believe in Him, then the promise is for you. It's for your children. No matter where you were born. Even if you're blind or lame or mute or crippled. Even if you've been in the wilderness so long that you're out of resources and you're utterly dependent. Pious people may look down their nose on you and say, send her away. She doesn't belong here. But Jesus sees you and says, O woman, O man, great is your faith. You are mine, the object of my love. My spirit works within you to will and to do my good pleasure. Be it done to you as you desire. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.